This is The Guardian. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Here in the UK, it's GCSE Results Day. The exams you take at 15 and 16 years old that can determine what you can do next whether it's work, apprenticeships, or further study. And for our non-UK listeners, let me assure you, it is a very stressful time. I think the nerves are getting to me a bit this morning because we've got Alex and Francesca who have put themselves up as the first to open their results. Alex, you were very nervous. Tell us, what did you get? Look at his face! Yay! That's a good face! It's fair to say teenagers these days don't have it easy anyway. In fact, mental health issues are on the rise for adolescents. And according to the World Health Organization, globally one in seven 10 to 19-year-olds experiences a mental disorder. Last December, the US Surgeon General issued a rare public advisory warning of a, quote, devastating mental health crisis among American teens. Symptoms of depression and anxiety for children and adolescents have doubled during the COVID-19 pandemic. Whilst many young people require medical and psychological interventions for their mental health, schools are also trying to support the mental well-being and resilience of their students. But this leaves teachers, parents and students with a difficult question. What's a usual and acceptable level of teenage stress, anxiety and sadness? And what's a mental health problem? And how can we help adolescents without making them feel worse. From The Guardian, I'm Madeline Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. Lucy Foulkes, you're an academic psychologist at University College London, and you're interested in adolescent mental health. And we're about to have a really challenging and nuanced conversation about some difficult issues and we can't cover everything but I also think it's important to say to our listeners that 
this is about looking at helping adolescents and not about blaming or making anyone feel bad or guilty or like they're not doing the right thing. Mm, I think that's important to, to young people, but also to teachers and parents and everyone else trying to understand this problem. Great. So Lucy, this morning here in the UK, GCSE results are coming out. So it's a particularly stressful time of the year. But first, I want to get the general picture of mental health and rates of diagnosed anxiety and depression amongst teenagers. What do we know about this? Yeah, so it's difficult to give exact figures about rates because it sort of depends um, how you measure it and who you ask, etc. But what we do know is that things seem to be getting worse. So over the last five years or 10 years in particular, there are more teenagers reporting symptoms of anxiety and depression and more of them going to their GP and getting diagnosed with those conditions. So rates are going up. And of course, that doesn't mean that all teenagers are struggling. But When I think about what they're faced with today, we've just come out of a pandemic, we're going straight into a cost of living crisis, and we know that poverty does have a serious impact on mental health. And then there's the climate crisis making their futures uncertain. They don't have an easy time of it. So are there any ideas as to exactly why more teenagers are either getting mental health diagnoses or are struggling with these issues? So I think it's useful to think about it as three different possibilities, but it's they're not in conflict with each other. I suspect all of these are happening to slightly different degrees. So the first is linked to what you were saying, is that you know things really are getting worse for them. Their lives really are objectively more stressful than they were for teenagers in the past. And there's all sorts of factors that play into that. So all the things you just described, but also, for example, that social media is changing the way that they interact with each other. There's interesting theory and ideas about academic stress being higher now because the stakes are higher you know your educational performance matters more in terms of your success in inverted commas in later life but there are two other things which I think get slightly ignored in the conversation so the second one is that we might just have a better awareness of the problem now so because of all these campaigns that we've done to talk more about mental health there's a better understanding of the problem and a better willingness to come forward and say I've got this problem so that's a good thing but it would make things look like they're getting much worse when they're not and then the third factor which I'm particularly interested in although I certainly don't think it's the whole answer is that we are changing the way we talk about mental health now we are now increasingly labelling and interpreting sort of milder, more transient problems as being symptomatic of a problem in a way that can actually end up becoming a bit self-fulfilling. So I want to dig into that third option because adolescence is a very emotional time of life. I know my parents would personally attest to that. Mm -hmm. But is it clear, can it be clear when something is a normal part of being a teenager and when it's something more serious? Because it must be a pretty fuzzy grey line. So like I said at the beginning, there's not a dichotomy between normal, in inverted commas, distress or normal levels of anxiety and then a kind of clinical manifestation of the same problem. All these symptoms exist on a continuum, on a gradually changing spectrum. And it's just that as you move up towards the sharper end of the spectrum, you'll start having these symptoms or feelings more often um, you'll feel them more severely uh, they'll be more difficult to control they'll cause you more distress and also really importantly in terms of 
deciding whether something is you know, a disorder or not, uh, they start to um, limit the way that you live your life. But you've captured exactly the issue that academics are battling with and teenagers and parents and teachers, which is that, you know, at what point does garden variety, distress, unhappiness, challenges become something that we need to be concerned about or intervene with or label or, you know, seek help for? And people are so worried, understandably, about missing something that that fuzzy line is moving more and more down towards the mild end of things. So because we have a greater awareness and more language to talk about mental health, this obviously has a lot of benefits in terms of destigmatizing the issues and helping people spot when there's a problem and taking people seriously as well. But it might also have these negative consequences that perhaps we're overinterpreting something potentially transient or worrying that the stress or sadness is symptomatic of a disorder or illness when actually it's difficult but it doesn't need to be treated and in that sense I can imagine social media is part of this because I know that when I feel bad I go straight online for information and help and often end up self-diagnosing when probably I shouldn't be. Yeah, we've all done it. It's the most normal, understandable thing when you're experiencing something negative or difficult or new, you know, physical or mental health wise, you go online and you you Google it or you read something. And there's comfort in that, you know, partly why people are using this language and this framework is because in some respects, it's comforting to read up on something and think, oh, you know, it's something that someone else experiences. It's real. It has a name. That's a very powerful process. But people using this narrative and these frameworks too readily has problems for everyone across the spectrum. I want to talk about schools because it does seem like it would be a really good place to help adolescents. And I'm sure any teachers listening have had to support and address the mental health of their students in the classroom. And this is something I know you're interested in researching. What kind of support is being offered right now in schools? So I agree and I get a lot of emails from teachers who are so concerned and so motivated to try and solve the problem, to try and help people in distress without accidentally, you know, over pathologizing or over interpreting things. Teachers are trying to navigate a messy landscape with a lot of conflicting information about what they're supposed to do. So I was particularly interested in what was called universal lessons. So the idea with universal lessons is that you teach all students about mental health information. So the whole class or the whole school and universal lessons on paper seem like a great idea because it's very fair because it, it might be difficult to identify who needs it the most. And also it can be stigmatizing to pull specific students out of lessons and tell them that they need this extra support. So it's a great idea. And the idea is that if you teach it to everyone, you can potentially teach them coping skills before they even become unwell. And these might be cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT techniques, or something like mindfulness, which as you say on paper, it does sound great. But what was the outcome of these lessons for students? So sometimes universal lessons don't work at all. 
when they do work, the improvement tends to be pretty small, considering the amount of time involved for the students. But also, there's actually really interesting emerging evidence that for at least some teenagers, having these lessons actually increases symptoms of mental health problems, not by a lot, but you know, an increase is still an increase. So best case scenario, these lessons are potentially just wasting teenagers time, which is valuable. And worst case scenario, they actually could be causing some of them harm. I'm sure there could be lots of factors at play here, perhaps putting emphasis on negative thoughts and feelings. But I also wonder whether this could come down to time as well, because teachers and students are already hugely busy and budgets are usually tight. And often these aren't issues that can be solved in a one hour group lesson. So is there a problem in trying to deal with this in schools? And do you think that actually this needs to be dealt with by professionals externally? Well, it's interesting because the problem used to be out dealt with outside of schools. And then there was this, what's sometimes referred to as the therapeutic turn in education uh, in the past decade or so, where there's a lot of motivation to prevent and treat and support mental health problems within school, which makes a lot of sense because it's, um, it's where teenagers are. And also it's fair because if you rely only on external support, then you rely on parents having the capacity and ability to seek uh, help for the teenagers, etc. So so the issue there is exactly what you described. So they're not teachers aren't mental health professionals. They're very limited their time. This pressure on schools to manage mental health problems is not matched by funding that will really enable them to solve the problem. And I wonder if if part of what would be useful would actually be, I mean, obviously, it's all money, isn't it? It's not easy, but to better fund external services that you could refer out to and put less pressure on school to solve this immensely difficult problem. And so we've talked about some of the issues. Is it clear what could be the best way to help young people with their mental well-being or provide support to those who are struggling with their mental health? We don't really know for sure yet, but my hunch is that the academic field at least might start to move away from universal approaches and and think again more about targeted approaches so how do we identify the people who are at risk and offer more specific support to them I think there's fairly basic stuff which could be promoted in terms of validating young people's distress wherever it falls on the spectrum you know actually listening to them but yeah on unfortunately a lot of it comes down to money the thing that might be most useful is probably going to be expensive In terms of listening to teenagers as well, you know, adolescents aren't small adults. So what do we know about what teenagers specifically would appreciate that could help inform strategies about managing mental well-being? Well, it's a really good point. And I think it's all been a bit top down up until now. You know, there's these adult assumptions about what will work and what's good for them. Or we kind of lift interventions and ideas that work in adult settings I'm interested in the idea that we need to yet better incorporate what we know about psychological development in adolescents into school mental health approaches. So, for example, they're often self-conscious around their peers and they're influenced by their peers. So that has really important implications in terms of asking them to sit in a circle and talk about something that's worrying them, for example. They also have a 
desire and need for autonomy you know they're not adults yet but they are developing their independence and I think actually asking them what they would find useful rather than telling them what they need and telling them what the problem is I hope will get us further than we are at the moment. Lucy thank you so much. You're so welcome Uh, it's really lovely to talk to you. Thanks again to Dr Lucy Folks. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, in the UK, the charity Mind is available on 0300 123 3393. And Childline is available on 0800 1111. In the US, Mental Health America is available on 800 273 8255. And we've put more resources on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. There, you'll also find a link to Lucy's book, What Mental Health Really Is and What It Isn't. And that's it for today. The producer was me, Madeline Finley, with additional production by Rachel Porter and Jackie Wakefield. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku. And the executive producer was Isabel Rugol. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.